Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Transfigured. I'm here with Nate Heil. Um, Nate is a, uh, a regular in the Paul Vanderclay community. So um, for those who are over there, you'll probably recognize him. Um, he has his own YouTube channel, Grail Country, which I'll link to in the description. Um, and Nate, you're, uh, you're a very interesting guy I know a little bit about your biography, but I don't know a ton. Um, but today we're going to be we're going to be talking about a David Bentley Hart book called Tradition and Apocalypse, which is sort of um, David Bentley Hart's um, let's see or I, I don't know uh, a explanation for what Christian tradition is and how it works and how it can change over time in a way that's authentic sort of, mm -hmm. uh, I think that's sort of the main topic of the book. But before we get into that, do you want to introduce yourself and, uh, I don't know, tell us a little bit about who you are and why you come to be interested in talking about these sorts of subjects on YouTube? Sure. So um, I, I think the thing that people find probably like the most ironic and interesting about me is that for those, I mean, I think a lot of people in the Vanderclay community already know this, but just for other for other people who are listening who don't who don't know, and for those who haven't heard yet, like the the weird thing about me is that I went to both the Evergreen State College uh, of Infamy, yes, and of, and, of, of Brett Weinstein Day of right. Absence Infamy, yeah, right. Where I study great books, by the way, <laughs> I still study great books even at the Evergreen State College. So. Um, and I also went to a very conservative Catholic great books college uh, called Thomas Aquinas College that at the time that I attended had only the original campus in Santa Paula, California, but they now have a New England campus too. Mm -hmm. So literally polar opposites. Yeah. So what was, <laughs> what, what was that like? Uh, who taught the great books better? Uh <laughs> um Ever, evergreen or thomas aquinas? no definitely thomas aquinas <laughs> uh what and, and I, end, I ended up like for 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 family reasons i ended up going back i moving back to washington and finishing up at evergreen and the way i dealt with is what i did is i just did independent contracts which is something that you can do mm -hmm. at evergreen for the rest of my time at evergreen so i just did independent contract studying the early church fathers at evergreen that's interesting until i graduated yeah so <laughs> so you've read a lot of the early church fathers then too yeah 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 I, and I've, I've i've watched your series you and hank are doing a great job well thanks I, you're so you're so i appreciate your intellectual honesty and objectivity thanks really um you're not you're not you don't shy away from things that that I mean, you're, you're like anyone, when you see something that, you know, is going to validate your perspective, you'll like, you'll grab onto that and say, Hey, but if something challenges it, you don't, mm -hmm. you don't shy away from it. So, yeah, I, I mean, I feel like whether or not objectivity is really a thing that can be grasped or sought after what I, what I think of doing is that I think of when I'm interviewing someone live, like I'm doing with you right now. I try to be fair in a way that wouldn't offend you or make you feel misunderstood or miss, uh, I don't know, communicated or misrepresented or something like that. 
I want right. I want you to feel like a chance that you got to have yourself out there fairly. And so when I'm talking about these church fathers, I almost kind of go through like the imaginary exercise that they're like listening or something like that. And that at the end, they'll get to give me feedback on whether I was fair to them. And I want them to feel like they're treated fairly. And I feel like that's not the, quite the same thing as objective, right? Right. From the no, it's from actually nowhere. much better. It's actually yeah. much better. It's much. It's actually much better. And, and and you can see how it comes out of your personality, right? Mm-hmm. Because what? Because the way you're saying, the way you just described it, that sounds more like empathy yeah. than a kind of like you know scientific objectivity, right? Which because is, I'm talking as if about such them... a thing were possible. And, Right, because I'm talking about them because I care about this subject. And, you know, there are, you know, even in an hour, hour and a half YouTube conversation, there are things that you have to ignore or leave out of the the talk because there's just not enough room. So you have to focus on stuff. And all of that is from your own perspective and from your own objectives and stuff like that. And so your own objectives make you not objective. Um, right and but but i but i just try and go for for fair so i'll even try and be fair to david bentley hart uh right. in, in right. this conversation too uh because who knows he it, it unlike um uh novation being able to watch one of my youtube videos he might actually watch this and that that would actually that would be perfectly fine um but so how so tell us a little bit about where you're at theologically so you so you have this great books background from two yeah. uh quite uh different schools so so what sort of how would you describe yourself uh in well my of- my experience at thomas aquinas in the in the mid 90s um led toward a eventual what i would describe as an intellectual like metaphysics first kind of uh conversion to catholicism and and you, so you can see where someone like David Bentley Hart would appeal to me because he's a very, he's a very mm-hmm. strong metaphysician. Yeah. Um, he's a, he's as, he's as good a classical theist as anybody operating in theology today. And that's, and that's something, and that's kind of like my background and my introduction into like my reintroduction to Christianity was through, through that route. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Cause of the great books background. Um, so um, but there, ultimately metaphysics alone is, uh, isn't going to cut it. Right. Um, and. Or you end up, uh, a, a Neoplatonist who's, uh, a religion that's not a religion. Right, right. Exactly. And, mm-hmm. and, and, and I, I had, well, in my, in my case, it was like a sort of platonic agnosticism. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, um, uh, you know, the sort of like a, sort of like a misguided version of Kusanis's learned ignorance, mm-hmm. right? Um, but mean, that was John, really more John more Verveke, what was <laughs> John Verveke is, I would say, something like a Platonic uh, agnostic or something like that. Yeah, kind of like by Ver- Verveke. Yeah, very much like Verveke, I would say, um, because I was still, I was not, I was never hostile to people who were religious i was always i remain i kept reading religion um and was interested in religious studies um and theology the whole time mm-hmm. so but um i didn't like had no faith you know 
of my mm -hmm. own and, and, you know, uh, and wasn't, you know, and was open-ended on the question of, I actually thought it was, I thought God was unknowable, which is true, but I didn't understand what that meant. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, um, yeah, but, uh, eventually David Bentley Hart, I mean, David Bentley Hart was one of the people who was instrumental along with Jordan Peterson, actually, of, of putting me on a different trajectory, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. which is funny because they hate each other. <laughs> well, I don't know. Actually, no, excuse me. David hates him. I don't think Jordan even knows who David is. Yeah. Yeah. That, that, that sounds right to me. Yeah. Um, so, so what was each of their contributions? Uh, so, um, for Jordan, Jordan's, uh, idea that faith, that faith is what you live was something that really challenged me because like throughout my entire life in all phases, like the person of Jesus always remained compelling to me, like without a doubt and was influential on the way I tried to live my life. Even if I, even if I, I didn't understand why that was. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So then I, that lead me to have to self-examine. It's like, okay, why am I doing these things? What does that mean? So it made me rethink, it made me rethink what faith is because I had, I had, I had kind of just accepted like the cultural default definition of faith which is just belief without evidence. This is, this is what belief without evidence is what people think faith is in our culture. Yes. Yeah. Which is a very shallow. Or perhaps even faith contrary to evidence or. Right, right, right. Exactly. But belief in things that are supernatural that you can't know any other way. Right. And that it perhaps is silly to believe in at all. Right. Exactly. So he challenged that, my, that, that understanding of faith for me. And like David was one of the first people I started like reading again when I started reading theology seriously. Mm -hmm. And um, and basically in the process, I was like, oh, like in, an, in a very like obvious existential way, I had been a Christian all along mm -hmm. and just sort of like working against that. Yeah. Now, the other figure that was instrumental in that, like probably even more, more than the, the figure that really, really, really turned me, turned me, my thinking around entirely, even more so than David or Jordan, Jordan gave me that initial spark with making me rethink what is faith, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And then David kind of gave me like, gave me a lot of new arguments of the kind that I was used to. Then it was sort of a more modern form, I would say. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, but then at some point in this, this has all happened in a very close period of time. I discovered Barfield via, I actually read Mark Vernon's bar book on Barfield, Secret mm -hmm. History of Christianity first. Mm -hmm. And then started reading Barfield directly. And it's like, that was just like, imagination is a truth bearing uh, faculty. And yeah. I'd, I'd written poetry for years and it's like, yeah, of course it is. It's like, there was a reason why this, there's a reason why this stuff keeps showing up in my poetry, even though I profess to be an agnostic. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So it's like, there's a part of your, there's a part of your, there's a part of you that already knows this to be true. Mm 
in a way that maybe you don't know how to always defend propositionally against every single argument that comes against it, mm-hmm. that doesn't make it less true. Right. Or less known. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then I started to lean into imagination and beauty, which you can definitely see in evidence in the content on Grill Country. Mm-hmm. And I was off and running. Mm-hmm. So these days I am a practicing Anglican. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So I'll actually be officially received on Sunday. Oh, well, congratulations. Yeah. Um, so yeah, well, well, thanks for that. So so and and David Bentley Hart was kind of a player in the new atheist debate days, right? Yeah, he wrote a book called Atheist Delusions that just like yeah, mm-hmm. he that eviscerated the new atheists, yeah. Yeah. And yeah. so so he has um that kind of propositional um it maybe even kind of modernist argumentative aspect to him. Mm-hmm. But I think but he's also not your standard like Bible thumping fundamentalist who right. was the main sort of Christian target of the new atheists either. He is quite different from that. Right. And he's a fiction writer too. And mm-hmm. so he also brings like a, a kind of artistic sensibility to it as well. So it's not, there's a, there are additional layers. There's a lot of, there's a lot of, t- there's a lot of passion in David's writing. Yes. It's not just cold. <laughs> yeah. It's not just cold propositions. He's not a, he doesn't read like a, um, you know, like it, like an analytical philosopher or anything right. like that. Yeah, he <laughs> he is sort of hard to categorize as yeah as a thinker or a theologian, um, because he is Eastern Orthodox by denomination and tradition, mm. um, but he doesn't read very similarly to any Eastern Orthodox person, past or present, that I've encountered before. Um, right. And in fact, perhaps one of my faint, well, for me, this isn't really a criticism. Honestly, he sounds kind of Protestant a lot of times. Does. To me. Um, I'd say specifically Anglican, which is his background. His two, his his brothers, two of his, his brothers are both Anglican priests. Mm -hmm. Um, And, and and neither, and both Anglican and not Episcopalian. So they're continuing Anglican because they're, they're very high church, Anglo-Catholic leaning folk. Uh Um. And patristics has always patristics has always been strong in Anglicanism. So the an Anglican converting to Eastern Orthodoxy isn't really all that shocking. Mm -hmm. But that doesn't. But but neither is them maintaining Protestant sensibilities even after they convert. So to me, it makes knowing his background, it makes total sense. Yeah, yeah. Because like if I were if I were to be have become Eastern Orthodox. I still would have Protestant sensibilities. Right. I'm an yeah. American. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Went to Evergreen <laughs> State College. Yeah. Right. Exactly. It's like, yeah. It's like, hello. Yeah. yeah. And and I, I noticed that because when he's talking about church history in this book, there's a lot of focus on, say, the first three, four hundred years and then what that means for the present right? Which is a very Protestant flavored relevance, I would say, right? For, for Protestants, they often, depending on what kind of Protestant they are, focus on the early period, right? For a very restorationist Protestant, it might just be the first century. 
for a slightly more magisterial process that will stretch it out to include, say, Augustine in like 450 years or something like that. But then there's this sort of not strong emphasis on the Middle Ages or stuff after that. And then... I'll Right, where I would say he differs from, say, like the normal Protestant and like the anti-Nicene kind of focus mm -hmm. is that he does also have a love of some of like the early Nicene fathers and the post-Nicene fathers yeah, yeah. and uh, the parts of the medieval tradition. But I would say that in terms of like the, the, the cult of, the, of imperial Christianity, mm -hmm. he definitely has no love for Right. Nor do I. So that's, yeah, that's not, a, that's not like he sound. In fact, David Bentley Hart, like comes very, very close to, to sounding like a Christian anarchist in this book at times. Yes. Yeah. I, um, I, I, I although he, he's, although he's been on the record as saying many times, I am not a pacifist. So. <laughs> well, he, he can be um, uh, fierce enough with his words sometimes where I yeah. believe it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but Stanley Howrah says I'm a pacifist because I'm a violent son of a bitch, too. <laughs> so, yeah, <laughs> fair enough. So, um, so his, his goal for this book seems to be um, trying to, he, he talks both very highly and both very negatively about John Henry Newman's, um, you know, uh, yeah. view and understanding of Christian tradition, um, because it seems- And even more highly and slightly negatively about Blondell's Histoire Dogma. Right, yes. <laughs> so, th so those seem to be the two books that he views himself in a series with, basically. And right. that he's trying to improve upon and fix or correct um, their mistakes, even though, he is complimentary of them enough to admit that he that they're trying to do a thing that needs to be done. Yeah, and he quite and succeed. he quite fairly points out that the, they failed because the task that's set before them is so monumental. Yes, yes. And yeah. they're you know basically they're human. Right, right. <laughs> that's why they failed. It, it's like John Henry Newman realized there was a mountain that needed to be climbed, yeah. and uh, he didn't you know, have a very successful first attempt, but it's still an enormous task itself to identify a mountain that needs to be climbed that no one else has really done so before. Yeah. It's like he discovered Mount Everest. I guarantee you that, 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 that that's that those parts of this book that were even, even though they were kind, but critical of Newman probably did not go over well at Thomas Aquinas College. <laughs> yeah. So, I, and I think the problem, <laughs> the problem is something like this, that sort of what you could say liberal um, Christian historical scholarship starting kind of in the you know early modern period was starting to better understand the development of doctrine you know doing something not entirely unlike my church father series um, that shows like hey you know Christianity seems to have changed over time um, and certain dogmas uh, evolved. Certain dogmas seem to almost appear out of nowhere. Certain practices that were common early on are lost. Certain practices that are common now were not common early on, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And how how are we to make sense of this? You know, we need a we need an explanation for why Christian tradition. There's something that's the same about it, and there's something that can change. I think David Bentley Hart says something basically exactly like that. The, mm -hmm. the task of any 
theory of what Christian tradition is and isn't needs to explain what the core stability is that makes it a single thing. And then it also needs to be flexible enough to say, here's how it can be different from time to time. And it can't just be an arbitrary post hoc explanation of those two things. Right. And the reason the book is called Tradition and Apocalypse is that he he turns to apoc to the apocalyptic as the way in which that we can understand this. And he brings in the the idea the Aristotelian idea of final cause. Yeah. As the way of 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 understanding of how we can understand this. And then he then he explicitly points toward kingdom mm -hmm. as the final cause. Right. So meaning that there's some sort of, I don't know, um, uh, magnet in the future uh, that is, you know, kind of the, the perfected eschaton, the glorified state of all things that is tugging on the Christian tradition to bring it into that fullness of realization. And that is sort of how we need to understand what's shared in the whole process and how it can change and evolve. I would say not just in the future, though, but in eternity. So that, that means yeah. it's also, and because it's in eternity, that means it also can connect to the now. Right. Yeah. Because if it were only in the future, if we're only in the future, then it would be, then it could only be a matter of speculation because it couldn't, right. it couldn't really yeah. touch on the now. Yes. And so one thing that I, I think is, is interesting is that this is relatively similar to when I'm talking about John Verbeke in the form of a polar bear and that sort yeah. of thing is when I'm like, you know, there's the, the form of a polar bear and it has its purpose, its end, its telos of, you know, catching seals and sort of through the process of evolution, it's tugging on polar bearhood to become right. more and more perfect. And that the process of the the process of evolution is a way of interacting with sort of the present to become more and more like a final cause, and uh, and that and that you know I explicitly made sort of a uh, evolutionary argument for Christianity with John that is basically like you know it's it's trying to Christianity is like the super organism of humanity being tugged in right. the direction that it's supposed to go so i ultimately think what's what's what happens here is 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 actually that's right and i think what david is trying to do is actually to recover uh newman's idea of a living tradition of an organic shall we say tradition but yeah. what he's what where he's correcting newman is he's saying if that's the case we can't only look back to the past mm -hmm. in the way that newman did in his essay mm -hmm. what we need to do is we also need to consider that that final causality which is connected to the to the eternity and to eternity into the future yeah yeah so and although it is interesting that david bentley hart does not like biological metaphors this is one right. thing that he criticizes newman for multiple times is having too biological of a, an analogy or a metaphor for a Christian tradition. Whereas for me, I'm like, lean into that. And he, he wants- I think he ultimately does though. I, yeah. I think even though he criticizes that, I think that's what he's doing. Mm -hmm. and, and, and yeah, I really do think that's what he ends up doing. Yeah, he does criticize the use of biological metaphors. 
And I think he, I think, I think his criticism of the use of biological metaphors has to do with the way in which those metaphors can be misunderstood in our age. Yes. And, and I think that one thing that he doesn't connect the dots on is he, there's even a couple of times where he almost explicitly says something like, um, you know, this could go in basically a Darwinist direction for Christian tradition Mm -hmm. And that he doesn't want to go there because then it seems like it's guided by arbitrary, random sort of. That's exactly right. That's why he feared. That's why he doesn't want to lean too heavenly into uh, the the um, the organism metaphor yeah. mm -hmm. because of because of the, our, our 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 Darwinian ideas in our age. Right. But if we let's let's if we take this into the realm of say Aristotelian biology. Yes. Yes. then he ultimately is doing the same thing that Newman is doing. Yes, yes. But not in a dark, so he's doing it in an organic way, but not in a Darwinian organic way. And it's an, it's an Aristotelian right. way. Yeah, or I would say if you just Aristotelianize Darwinism a little bit, Right. then then it becomes which thing. is what you're always trying to do with yes with which, is, which is basically good for you my, my, my whole right my whole verbaki conversations are basically like darwin plus aristotle seems to be a very strong argument for christianity and understanding what's going on this is a total sidetrack but i just have to ask out of curiosity have you ever heard of the physicist uh uh wolfgang smith no the one you'll want to look him up after this all right I'll put it's, a, in, it's in it's in it's in physics and not in biology but it's but his thinking is very uh friendly to what you're trying to do there because he's basically he's trying what he does is he what he does is is he recasts quantum theory in light of the uh of the Thomistic idea of potency and act which is obviously Aristotelian yeah because yeah. that because that's basically how my Aristotelian Darwinism kind of would need to work is that there's some sort of indeterminacy probably at the quantum level. Yeah, that's uh, that's act, the potency. Acting, yeah. acting and he's like that. He's like, and, yeah. right. He's like that. What that is, is potency. This is what this is what St. Thomas or Aristotle is talking about when they're talking about potency is yeah. that is that level that quantum layer. Yeah. Right. All right. And you said Wolfgang Smith. All yeah, right. Wolfgang Smith. I'll check him out. Karen, Karen's going to be having, I, I turned Karen on to him and uh, Karen's, Karen, Karen got excited and reached out to him. She's going to have him on her channel here soon. So. Oh, that's cool. So Karen Wong, the meaning code is going to have Wolfgang Smith on pretty soon. So maybe May, I'll, maybe I'll follow. Like in a, her, I think it like, yes, like yeah. in about a week. Yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah, definitely. I think you would be a productive mm -hmm. person for you to talk to because you're already thinking along similar lines. Uh-huh. Yeah. And so the what's interesting that I noticed is that Bentley Hart's criticism of Newman is similar to a problem that Darwin Darwinian theory has currently. One of the problems that Darwinian theory has currently is like the main way that evolution is described is that uh, okay, so there are organisms, there are ver there's variation among organisms. The ones that are more fit go on to survive and produce more offspring, and that fitness is transmitted to their offspring, and then more variation. And so you have the you have the the improved survival of things which are better fit to their environment. Okay, what does fit to their environment mean? Can we measure that? Can we put a number on that? Can we describe that more clearly? 
Well, then it's basically the definition of fit to the environment means while well, you survive and have offspring. And then if you plug that into the previous sentence, then you're basically saying the things which are um, that survive and have offspring survive and have offspring. And then you're basically just saying what will be will be right there. Yeah. There is this problem where it, it kind of has this word fitness that it can't actually define. And when you you poke at that a little bit, it gets tautological in its description. And I think the only escape from, and, and this is not a problem that I have invented or discovered or something like this. The tautology problem of, of evolutionary biology is a well-known problem in the right. no, philosophy yeah, very of science. True. And, right. and it seems very similar to when David Bentley Hart is describing, well, John Henry Newman, he, all of his, like most of his seven standards or seven ways of knowing an authentic contribution to tradition are just some form of tautology. Well, that's what he says. That's like yeah. his summary at the beginning at the outset. He describes it as a, as, as a, a noble attempt, by the way, he doesn't, mm -hmm. he doesn't criticize this, a noble attempt to turn a tautology into a, into a syllogism that fails. Yes. And yes. ultimately the end remains a tautology. Right. And, and so it's that, and it seems to me almost the, uh, like a Christian version of the Darwinian tautology that, mm -hmm. you know, that way, you know, there is a process that gave rise to what I am now. And it was right because I am now. You right. Know? Yes, exactly right. <laughs> and it can't really. Yeah, that is, that is, that is ultimately the shape of Newman's argument. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it's, and the problem with it is, is like, okay, so why couldn't every variant Christian tradition say the exact same thing about themselves? about themselves or even right. islam say that about themselves and then There's how a, would you adjudicate between competing rival claims because everyone would make the exact same claim right i would say that here's the thing is like and and, and david in, in arguing for bringing apocalypse into into the dialogue here and specifically of having eyes toward the kingdom he kind of puts it back what he does is he brings it back into the realm of by their fruits you shall know them Yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Ultimately. Right. Um, and of, uh, <laughs> end of a kind of a, it will stand the test of time too. And sort right. of a, a right. Darwinian exactly. kind of way, right? right. You know, some of the ways that you can tell if something is evolved for a purpose, right? Uh, biologists will say, well, it needs to be longstanding. It needs to be widespread and it needs to have some sort of cost associated with it. And that way you can tell it's something that has evolved for a purpose. And that's like, I think David Bentley Hart could use almost the exact same criteria or something mm -hmm. like that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so, so it, it's a, it's an interesting question, but I still think that there are some curious limitations to this method even though like I you're in good standing you're in good standing with uh david though in this book because he basically he says we should defer the idea he, he he should he says that we really should defer accusations of heresy yes effectively yes. right right because if you're around <laughs> we, <laughs> we can't know if you won't continue to be around or if you aren't also a revelation of the apocalypse itself too. right right it's hard he does to make know. some he does carve out some some very david bentley hart s caveats yeah um because uh 
David, I love David, but he is, he can be very, he can be very political in a particularly American way. Yes. At times. And mm-hmm. so I don't know if those caveats are, but the basic concept that he lays out, I'm totally aligned with. And his caveats are, I mean, I think we can write those off as his personal yeah. prejudices. Yeah. Because <laughs> yeah. they're not, they don't, they actually aren't consistent with his own argument. Yeah. Or at least not necessary to his own argument. What are, what are some of those caveats that, that you're pointing out? Oh, uh, let's see. It's actually. <laughs> It's toward the end, actually. Uh, let's see if I marked that or not. Um, well, the one that I mean, the one that I specifically had in mind was probably which the weakest line in the book is basically like uh, we that basically we can write you off uh, as not adhering to the tradition if you. Uh, if you voted for Trump, who he doesn't name, yeah. he says he just says a, a, a recently removed Republican president of the United States. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, you know, I mean, it's <laughs> I think that's like that's a little small-minded. Yeah, and you know, who who knows how long Trumpism will be around? <laughs> right. It could outlast it. Well, life. or that his reading of Trumpism is right. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Cause that's what it comes down to. It's like, I understand what, I mean, I understand from his perspective, I understand what he, I, I under, I understand what he's saying. And he, I mean, he is being consistent with his own principles here. He's like, from his perspective, it's like the principles of Trumpism are clearly antithetical to the principles of the kingdom, but we should, let, but why, do, but if you act, but if you were actually, if you were to sit down and talk to a Trump supporter of let's say you know above average moral sophistication integrity, yeah. integrity and sophistication they would very much tell you why they think that it is in fact mm. advancing the kingdom right yeah or yeah. and and a, a sophisticated trump but that's the also... right argument to have though so that's yeah. still good that's still good because that's the right argument to have mm-hmm and a sophisticated Trump voter could also be like, yeah, I fully agree with you, David Bentley Hart, that, that the values of Trump aren't in line with the kingdom. But, you know, are the values of Democratic candidate X in line with the kingdom? And so we're choosing between stinky choices. Right. And, you know, here's some reasons why I think this is. The and I would just sit in self-righteous yeah. Christian anarchist judgment over all of them and say, why are you involved in politics? It's all a dirty game. <laughs> right. So, so, yeah. So some of those. Yeah, the, where especially when it seems so obviously presentist or or something yeah, like that. Right, exactly. Yeah. yeah, it does. It actually undercuts the. He yeah. makes a. It actually undercuts his argument, which is very strong, and it's it's beneath him. He shouldn't have. Yeah. But that's like he has. He's got a little bit of a. I love David, but he does have a little bit of a petty streak. Mm-hmm. This is why, which is why he backed out of the conversation with John Verbicki. That I had arranged. Yeah. Well. Them. So I I would say that there, where was I going to go? That this temptation to use a whatever authority that you have built up to kind of leverage the current political moment is a really strong temptation that I think needs to be avoided. Right. And, and that. That and that it really undercuts that this long view of how history works and how 
we can come to make any sort of historical judgments about these things at all. I agree. And, and yeah. also this this sort of, I think this error that the political arena is finally the arena that most matters or something like that. And right. that's where I'll probably, I'm not, I, I won't call myself a Christian anarchist, but this is probably where we can agree that right. if anything, part of the whole problem that we're having so much is in our in American society right now is the over elevation of the importance of politics itself. Yeah, and, we totally can agree about that. And it seems like him taking an underhanded swipe at Trump is sort of like the temptation of putting politics too high and to one, use his credibility. To I just love the what I just actually love the uh, the analogy or the the symbol that I would should say actually that is used in one of the books that I've been reading recently, which is um, I've been reading Charles Upton's critique of uh, Alexander Dugan's thought. It's called Dugan against Dugan, and he's critiquing him from a traditionalist perspective. And he calls this obsession the like basically the he he calls it the war of Gog Gog and Magog. Yeah, that's actually so. It's that which is a distraction from the true eschatological yeah. conflict. Yeah. So it keeps us it keeps us from actually engaging in the important and the important struggle because we're fixated on this lesser struggle, lesser, yeah. less, lesser struggle. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that that um, that makes sense. And I don't know a ton about Dugan, uh, mainly everything that I know about Dugan is from like videos from the last three weeks right. <laughs> because before that i had never heard of this person but i hadn't either I, I mean i didn't either i just wouldn't read him i'm like okay i want to know it's like i didn't want to just like there was something about i noticed a pattern in his interviews that he had a tendency to just say whatever he thought would be ex expedient, expedient in the moment right mm -hmm. so it's like okay i need to actually read him yeah, because he seems to put this to me. Yeah, in these interviews, because yeah. he's he seems to be playing to whoever whoever's talking to him. He seems to be playing to their sensibilities. Yeah, and if you as, watch him across several interviews, he flatly contradicts himself. As far as I can tell, and I I don't like swearing, so I'm I'm using this phrase in the technical philosophical sense. But he basically seems to be a a bullshit artist who right. who leans into that and thinks that that actually is the right thing to be i think that he, i actually yes i do i think well he actually has like in his book his his uh in his, his book the fourth political theory there the, the 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 like final part section of it is about the the metaphysics of chaos mm. so yes yeah he thinks it's therapeutic he's doing it on purpose yeah so <laughs> and I, and i don't even know what argument to concoct that that's a bad thing to do <laughs> like <Right>. it's like <laughs> if i can't convince you that that's the wrong thing to do i don't even know what to yeah say. he's he's thoroughly postmodernist um he's thoroughly postmodernist um, mm -hmm. post and and he can and he portrays himself as an enemy of postmodernism but his thought is thoroughly postmodern that and power, I don't see, and that I don't power think matters at the end of the day that really all there is. is right, exactly. And he's about the projection of Russian power on the globe. That's right. That's all he cares about. And where, and he'll use, he uses traditionalism and certain aspects of Russian orthodoxy 
to that end, but that's what he ultimately cares about is the projection of Russian power. Right. And, and so if he has to use orthodox traditionalism or whatever to accomplish that, that's all part of the BS Act. Yep. Yeah, but it's it's the propagandist BS Act to get your own people on board. And whereas you have the undermining BS Act for the thing that's outside yourself. Yep. Yeah. So that was a big sidetrack. Yeah, anyway. <laughs> but not, I mean, kind of. Kind of, yes, but kind, kind of, of no. not at the same time. I know. Yeah. Yeah. Because right. part of this power thing is that, you know, is evolution, is the process that undergirds this telotic um, magnet towards the future. Is it really all about power or is it no, about something deeper or is power just not what we think it is? Right. Right. You should. I just, I don't know if you've seen the discussion that Sherry and I just had on our, on our latest uh, from letter four of meditations on Matero, but that's no. actually, so Tom Berg in that chapter actually has does as good a job as anyone I've ever seen distinguish between authority and power mm -hmm. and talk about what the proper like basis of authority is. Yeah. Um, so you should well, check it out. I think you might find it interesting. Well, what is the proper basis of authority? The divine name. Fair enough. But then he goes in, but he goes from there, from, from it saying that it's a divine name, he actually goes into like what, 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 what the meaning of that is. Uh, by looking at essentially by looking at how how god actually operates because this is sort of a danger of my kind of evolutionary telotic aristotelian thing is that well aren't you just saying it's like whoever wins was right you know mm -hmm. um and part of me is like well yes i kind of am saying that but you know what sort of game do you think you're playing I guess is sort of the, you know, the God is the author of the arena. Uh, you know, the, the game that we're playing in the arena is in God's creation and that the success is the success of an embodied thing is a revelation of truth itself. It's just surprising that the actual thing that wins is, you know, a crucified Messiah, which is, not exactly what you would think from just a very heavy-handed which is the which is you know. which is what reveals that it's not about power right yes yes it's ultimately about love and freedom and it's a hierarchy of love and freedom yes that's what okay. the cosmic hierarchy is <clears throat> this is why politics is ultimately doomed to failure yeah because it can't embody that i mean I bet you would say that there is something that is political about the kingdom, or maybe you just don't like that word for it. Well, that's the, that's the thing. It's like, yeah, but here's the thing. It depends on, it, it ultimately depends on what you, how you define political. If you mean by political, mm -hmm. simply the way in which a group of human beings is socially organized, right. then, you, then, then you can't evade the idea of the political. A, a hierarchical But to me, but to yeah. me, most people, the way most people think of the political, that isn't what they mean. Mm -hmm. Because they're mm -hmm. all sort of voluntaristic social, voluntaristic uh, social structures that happen that I would say that are more in accordance with the, with this cosmic hierarchies of freedom and love that don't have what would be the explicitly political, which is that essentially the monopoly on force. Mm 
yeah and compulsion mm-hmm. yeah which actually doesn't have any part of that natural hierarchy that's part of the fallen order but wouldn't you also view. say that governments are most effective when they don't need to use that very much and when they yeah because authority does real authority doesn't have to use it that's like the, that's yeah. the sign in fact mm-hmm. the sign that you have to that, that you have to use compulsion is a sign that you don't have authority if right. you had actual authority you wouldn't have to use it yeah people would just see your authority right. and like oh yeah of course and so that guy li- knows exactly what's going on to lean even more into deviant <laughs> relevant topics, I swear we'll we'll circle back to like the Aryan controversy or something sometime soon. But when in the Russia versus Ukraine thing, it's it's also clear that that the Ukrainians and Zelensky have a lot more of a voluntary aspect to them. You know, Zelensky is inspiring through leadership, and you know whether or not we think that it's moral to sort of defend yourself with the full military force that he's using, at least we can see that a lot of it is that the magnetism of his personality is inspiring a lot of voluntary defense of the country, whereas the Russian army is full of conscripts and mercenaries and stuff like that, and people who don't really actually want to do what Putin's telling them to do, and it doesn't work as well. Right. And well, it's, and, and his number one enemy is liberalism, right? Mm-hmm. And I understand his critiques of liberalism and his problems with liberalism. And because if you have if you have if you have a liberalism that has no God, mm-hmm. then it is actually in service of the nothing. Yeah. Right? Because free freedom it, is it, really it just isolates everyone. Freedom is ultimately it. about the undetermined potency, if we're yeah. gonna bring that right (laughs) it's the undetermined potency yes but it's necessary Mm -hmm. right for the actual design that god that that god has freedom the freedom is the nothing the potency is necessary so to make it your if you make it your great enemy you are in a way that is not trivial actually making god your enemy yes (laughs) <laughs> that's a good way of putting it yeah to, to quote uh jordan peterson you might need a balance of chaos and order for your system right to work right properly. exactly yeah yeah, yeah. And, and liberalism sometimes has trouble articulating exactly what its order is um without without something kind of god because it needs god it needs god and which is what the, <laughs> which is what the founding fathers always said although right. in ways that perhaps the christian right misconstrues and misunderstands but right yes, no people but that's like, right people like john adams will very thoroughly say that right. this and- form of government will only work for a, a religious people and a godly people that's right. And uh, I will certainly be the first to have like many critiques of, of both modernity and liberalism, but there's no way that you can look at the, you know, the actual record, the historical, the actual historical record and not say, yeah, things actually are probably better <laughs> for those things having come yeah. into into fruition steven steven pinker's graphs might not say everything steven pinker wants them to say but they still say something (laughs) right 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 exactly yeah no that's right yeah exactly yeah um no no no, sorry dugan i ultimately (laughs) don't prefer not to live under the iron thumb of your of your Mm. of your uh, of your ubermensch czar yeah so and it's, it's just hard to see how it's not just slavic fascism i i, I don't he says it's not 
Right. He says it's not fat. Well, he, he's so he says it's not fascism because that's why. It's, so the reason his book is called The Fourth Political Theory is that he is essentially he says there were there were three political theories of modernity that fought for supremacy. Mm-hmm. Liberalism, which was actually the first, like it came first. It was the first to be introduced and then communism and then fascism. Mm-hmm. Fascism had the shortest lifespan. Um, communism ultimately failed and liberalism was left alone and from Dugan's point of view liberalism contains the seeds of its own destruction and I actually wouldn't disagree with that if it continues mm-hmm. on if we continue on a godless trajectory and a hyper atomized individualistic and a hyper exactly a hyper atomized individualism and then we lo- and, right yeah yeah that's the other thing where that's the other place where I think Dugan goes badly wrong is in thinking of what the political subject is mm-hmm. because he doesn't see the person as an alternative to the collective and the atomized individual, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. the person who, which is a fundamentally relational being. Yeah. Um, and he could have got that from the Russian tradition. Like that's like Lasky is like one of the primary sources of that. But in any case, so th- those were the three political theories of modernity. And so there's, and they're, they're all either failing, failing or have failed so that we need a fourth political theory. So what he does is he tries to recover parts of fascism and communism and liberalism in order to move toward a fourth political theory. So there are elements of it that we could point to and say, oh, that those were characteristics of fascism. But he's saying it's like, well, yeah, but that's because their fascism failed, not because everything in fascism was wrong, but because it had these critically wrong parts. And for him, um, racism is the... Um, is the failed part of particularly Nazi fascism is that it was based on racism. And he's very, he's more anti-racist than the most woke anti-racist. His definition Mm -hmm. of racism is so broad that basically making any value judgment between any culture whatsoever is racism. I didn't think we could broaden the definition of racism. Oh yeah. It's broader. It's broader. It's broader. (laughs) It's broader. If you say, I mean, by Dugan's definition, if you were to say, that you think not that you prefer let's say you could say that you that you prefer you could say that you prefer german composers to russian composers but if you were to actually say that german composers are better than mm. russian composers that's racism yeah interesting i don't know there's some pretty good russian composers though but well no. i wasn't i wasn't taking a stand up <laughs> i'm just using that yeah, there are. Yeah. They're I, very good. I, I, I understand. I, I, Although maybe we've fallen in the trap ourselves of thinking that the real action is in the political, I guess. Um, right. Yeah. It's, That's it's where a, I'm at. It's, it's a, <laughs> <laughs> That's where I'm at. It's hard not to. But so, it is. It's very hard. What? I guess circling back a little bit, pulling back out of the Duke and stuff. Although I, I don't. I thought that was a worthwhile. Uh, um, uh, side conversation but I we've never we, had a chance to talk at length before so there's so gonna be some side trails there, there, <laughs> and, that, and that's fine one of the things that i think is a weakness of the david bentley hart um thing uh, of his definition of tradition is it doesn't really have any good way of adjudicating competing claims and he doesn't really talk about this in the book at, at all really as far as i could tell and what's interesting in the book, I think it he, does. I think it's what I indicated earlier. I think, and which is why his his adjudication is by their fruits. Yeah. Is this is this actually 
helping to realize the kingdom or not. Yeah. That's his, that's how, that's the, that's his, that is the measure he's offering us. And he uses, he uses his own, that metric on his own part to, there are certain things that he rejects mm-hmm. that I think it's maybe he rejects prematurely mm-hmm. that maybe he's only, maybe he's not examining, maybe he's only examining the surface of the fruit. Yeah. Right. right? So maybe, maybe the fruit has, it has a slightly, you know, uh, not as not attractive exterior yeah right it's got some blemishes on it and it's just like yeah that's and he throws Mm -hmm. it aside but i would say that he just his his own discernment needs to be deeper because like what is the flesh of the fruit like and and maybe you don't know this is the other problem is that our ability our fruit judging ability is also itself imperfect right right you know and and this this is the other slice of the pie that 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 we're our own knowledge of apocalypse is also incomplete, right? So, so we can't, with perfect judgment, trust our intuitions. And so, there's a problem of maybe the fruit is fruit isn't ripe yet, or, or right. you know, all you know, there's the fruit problem, and then there's the fruit judging problem, and and it it makes it, it it's it's a it's a weird two footed dance that that's hard to do to really know if something's working, and. He, he does seemingly have a pretty high view of reason and um, logical consistency, I think, is one of his yes. other tools that he does believe in for sort of judging tradition is that. And he's not just discu- and he's not saying that we shouldn't look back to the past at all. Right. Either. Yes. What he's saying is that we can't only look to the past. Right. That we have to also have this other consideration. Yeah. And part of me. Part of me feels like he was that that another kind of secret Protestantism to him is that this does create something of an invisible church sort of doctrine, I think. And that and we just admit that the Reformation won on that point, and it's obvious. <laughs> I, I guess so. Well, I mean, I no, mean, seriously, look at what the look, look at what the Catholic Church says post-Vatican II. Yeah, yeah. The Orthodox aren't there yet, but if like basically every every reasonable thinking Orthodox person that you talk to will come around to some understanding that looks a lot like the post-Vatican II Catholic understanding. You can certainly find fundamentalist Orthodox that will be like, and you can find trad Catholics that are like yeah. Vatican II for right. precisely that reason amongst many others, mm-hmm. right? But overwhelmingly, we've all accepted the Protestant understanding of that. And mm-hmm. I don't see how that, I don't see how you can avoid that. Well, I mean, you one could hop into one could hop into hashtag orthodoxy on bridges of meaning and uh, get in some trouble if you start going too invisible churchy on them. Uh, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so but I would say that they're not like they're not representative of like the, I would they're not representative. I would say of the center. I would they're kind of like I mean a lot of first of all a lot of them are new converts, right? Yes. Yes. And new converts, and a lot of them as probably... David talks about, to bring this back to the text, as David talks about in this book, a lot of times new converts are some of the most prone to traditionalism, yes. which is not the same thing as tradition. Mm-hmm. I really, that's actually one of the more insightful things he says about the book, in the book, the, uh, the, the idea, the, the fact that he notices that what traditionalism does is it doesn't actually, it's not, it's not, it's not about roots. Mm-hmm. It actually wants to go like back to the most recently remembered thing. Mm-hmm. before yeah. whatever the bad thing was that ha- right so yeah. it's like catholic traditionalism is, is very focused on 
like the er, that early modern period basically the catholicism early 20th century yeah pre-world right. war one you right. know yeah right they just want to go back to yeah right exactly mm -hmm. it's like they don't really want to go back and discover like medieval catholicism right yeah right so and and in fact like the the big dividing point is the tridentine mass well that's that came out after the council of trent it's not a yeah. it's not a medieval form mm -hmm. it's like so as far as i'm concerned like when Anglicans are celebrating the, uh, which is rarely done anymore, but when when when, Ad when Anglicans are celebrating the Sarum, right, they're being more Catholic than the Catholics. Interesting, I didn't know that. Because that's that a more a, that's it, a more genuinely medieval, ancient form of the uh, of the of the Western Rite than the Tridentine Masses. I didn't I didn't know that. That's interesting. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's an there's an extraordinary form of of the. Uh, of the Anglican mass that's called the Serum Rite, that's a it's an Anglican Latin rite that is still occasionally performed. That is actually a genuinely medieval. It goes back to like I think the 12th century. That's that's fascinating. And so this idea that so what what are what if uh, if rad trad calves are looking at like say 1900 or something like that what are what are a lot of orthodox converts looking to are they looking to 1452 or something like that you know uh the you know before constantinople fell although it was probably besieged in 1452 but anyway you you know what yeah I'm they do tend to be they very much are into the i think they're very much into everything byzantine right yeah, yeah. um for sure um mm. yeah the, that tends to be the tendency yeah and and a a monarchism a integralism yep, yep. and, and that that sort of, right yeah. exactly yeah integralist leanings are and, and orthodox i know integralism is no, normally mostly associated with catholicism but there's definitely an orthodox version of it right and you can see that come out in Pedro. i mean he'll self-describe himself as a monarchist which is like part of me is like how seriously do you do you really mean that? Like, what does that really mean to you, Peugeot, when when you say that you're a monarchist? Because like you, all of this American code in me is like bristling at every word in that sentence. And but I'm trying to ignore that. But like, what do you really mean, Peugeot? Who's going to be the monarch? And, and, you know, what, and what power do they have? You know, here's what's interesting. Like, I like, like Sherry and I were just discussing, like, like Tomberg's fourth letter, which is on the emperor, right? And Tomberg, it's interesting. He's like somewhere. He's actually kind of brings Pajot's position and mind together a little bit, and what he says because he recognizes the importance of the of the symbolism of the emperor, mm -hmm. right? That Pajot will often talk about, and how essentially, like all crowns derive their authority from the imperial crown and once the imperial crown goes away then but it's odd that he calls himself a monarchist market monarchist because he should be really properly he should be an imperialist mm -hmm. because monarchical crowns without an imperial crown above them they kind of they lose their authority but he also recognizes that once that has once that has gone away from history that every attempt to try to restore it has been by the sword. Yeah. And but the emperor, the, em the emperor, the emperor on the emperor card, it has no weapons. 
he's actually for the emp the true emperor like foregoes force so he reinterprets he reinterprets the emperor in terms of like essentially as like the true initiate like the one yeah. who's like the, begun the to understand symbol, the mysteries the symbol of unity that people voluntarily cooperate under and to or something like that yeah well he says it's now it, it's not it's, he says that the emperor is now like held in the in the in in the catacombs like it's it's like hidden and we know that any attempt we know we know that any attempt to actually reinstitute the emperor is bound to be a an antichrist if not the antichrist yeah or, well so I mean, so here's another i mean there is one crown that could still something claim something like a, an empire and it is the british crown and it's still kind right. of technically around but what's interesting is like, you know, it's basically toothless, right? And and that it is sort of the the symbolic power above the prime minister and parliament, right? Right. Without right. any actual um, you know, force itself. So it's kind of trying to do that. I think that's what Pajot, I think see, I thought Pajot's Canadian, so I think I think that's what he means. Mm -hmm. I think I think he he means like he thinks the important the the symbolism of a constitutional monarchy matters yeah so i think that i don't think i wouldn't interpret him saying he's a monarchist as him being anti-democratic yeah interesting i think yeah. that might be like somebody who is a citizen of the british empire yeah still technically yes like thinking of monarchy in those terms right yeah fair enough though so. And Jordan Peterson will make points similar to that, who's also a, uh, a citizen of, of the, the British uh, Empire. Yeah. But what's interesting is like the modern, the modern British crown is seemingly held in place by almost like it's like almost like a tabloid celebrity or something like that is kind of the weird sort of way that it is most manifest in the world. Like to be perfectly honest, you know, like yeah. that's most of its attention is that form of attention. Right. Um, and like it needs to be charismatic enough to justify its own existence, because why shouldn't we just get rid of this royal family? You know, they cost the taxpayers X many millions of dollars or whatever it is. And then they can do stupid things and have personal scandals that embarrass the whole country. And so why not just do away with this thing? And they need like their personal charis charisma to kind of hold and as a Christian anarchist, my response is I don't need the queen, I have Jesus. Right. My <laughs> my response as an American is similar. <laughs> right, right. As, as Samuel Adams, you know, my <laughs> my feelings are kind of similar. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um so so I guess so David Bentley Hart has a couple a couple methods for how we judge true innovation or true contributions to tradition, I guess. Innovation is maybe a slightly loaded word, but true contributions true to, to tradition is that it needs to bear good fruit. Um, he does seem that I, he doesn't emphasize it a ton in the book explicitly, but he emphasizes it a lot implicitly that it probably needs to be reasonable or, or coherent or logical, that this is right. one of the other tools that, that we have. And that it does need to have some kind of fidelity to the past, 
although I'm not sure if I got a clear sense of what would pass or fail that test. Um, and, and he seemed to criticize Newman for having such an elastic definition of what that would be that I didn't get quite a very strong sense of the positive version that he would have to offer of what would be, you know, have true fidelity to the past and what would be out of bounds on that. Right. I think fidelity, I mean, I think it can't be an out and for him, I think it just can't be an out and out betrayal. Right. Mm -hmm. So if it like, if it clearly, if it's, if it clearly contradicts the message of the cross and the message of the kingdom, then it's out for David. Yeah. I think he perhaps prejudges things as being in violation of those principles in a way that's not necessarily fair, but in terms of those being the standards, I would agree with them mm -hmm. that those are the standards. So I think that's, that, that's, that's what, that's what he's saying. So like, for example, when he, I know in, in part of the book that I'm sure was, was, was dear to your heart, like when he's talking about the developments of, of, of Nicene Christianity, mm -hmm. he essentially says that this is like this advanced our understanding of things that we did not properly understand before mm -hmm. and this is a defensible doctrinal change because of that and not and and not only does it advance our understanding it also does not do anything to contradict these fundamental apocalyptic revelations of of mm -hmm. the meaning of the cross and the meaning of the kingdom yeah and i'm not quite sure if he escaped newmanism in his uh, <laughs> attempt to justify that. But I do kind of understand where he was going. And well, what was interesting for him is his main seeming defense of Nicene Christology was a its stronger emphasis on deification than Arianism had. Um, and for that, honestly, so, so this is an interesting thing because this is, I will say that I actually kind of agree with him. And that one, so I think that there are three competing Christologies in the, the fourth century. Uh, I think that my sort of biblical Unitarianism, that's an anachronistic name, but dynamic monarchanism or whatever you would want to call it, was the distant third place, but it was around. Mm -hmm. And then there was Arianism and then pro-Nicene or Trinitarianism or, or whatever you'd want to call it. And that can you can you help me for a moment? Like, can, sure. like, I, I, I explain to me what in what way important ways your position actually differs from Arianism. I, I want to hear it from you from you directly. Sure. So Arianism still believes in pre-existence, right? That mm -hmm. Jesus is the incarnation of the logos, and the logos is a person that predates Jesus's human career. Right. So in that way, it's similar to Trinitarianism. Right. They just have a different understanding of the relationship. Of so the you kind of like so you're kind of like you're so you're kind of like in a line and aligned with Robert Jensen and saying they there ain't no such thing as the as the logos yeah. of Sarkos right. for you. Yes. OK. Yeah. All right. So both Arianism and its nice pro Nicene competitor had a strong view of the logos of Sarkos, but for Arianism, they needed. Can to I just say this is where I agree with you? All right, that's fine too. 
that's I think Jensen's too. right. <laughs> I probably need to read more Jensen. I know you've been pointing him and, my and way I and I think while, the reason but... that Jensen's right is I think that this like like getting rid of the idea of the logos to Sarkos is is actually how we understand the divinity and humanity of Christ cooperating together best if we just get rid of that idea. So you might like where I'm about to go. Might okay, not. let's hear it. All, All right. right. So so what I would say is that what the what what Athanasius and Arius were basically arguing about was the relationship of the logos of Sarkos to God the Father, right? And uh, Arius wanted to keep a relatively strong distinction and a stronger amount of hierarchy between them to uh, to safeguard God the Father's transcendence, right? And so that's why the logos had to be not the same substance to be generated at a point in time and not be co-eternal with God the Father. And so for areas, it's, it's not homoousion for... Right. And so this means that God the Father's transcendence is safeguarded. And that, but then the, the and, and, you know, the Arians would, were perfectly fine calling Jesus God. Right, they they believed in the divinity of Christ in their own way. They would be very offended to have modern people say, "Oh, Arians, those are people who believe that Jesus isn't God." They'd be like, "What? <laughs> you know, we think <laughs> right. that that the pre-incarnate Jesus was the one who appeared to Moses. We think he's the one that you know Jacob wrestled with." Like basically, you know, a thing that I think modern people don't really get is that for an Arian, the God of the Old Testament is the pre-incarnate Jesus. Yes. And that God the Father is like almost invisibly floating above that, and that the Jews almost didn't know about God the Father. And part of the purpose of the incarnation is to let us know that there was something even higher than the God of the Old Testament. And that that is that is actually Arianism. And that it's very different than what most people get taught that Arianism. Very different. Yeah. Yeah. And so, but the problem is, and I think David is a, David at Bentley Hart was exactly right in pointing this out, is that it means then that the divinity that becomes incarnate is a second-class divinity, right? Right. And instead of first-class homoousian divinity, right? And therefore, the deification that um, Christians experience to become like Jesus is to only become a second-class divinity while God the Father's divinity is, and the, and they were, the Arians were very apophatic, right? You talked earlier about not knowing God and, and that sort of thing. The Arians were very apophatic in terms of God, like the logos can't even fully describe God the Father, right? That's what comes along with having a belief in a very, very transcendent deity. It's yes. like, you're going to have to, your theology will naturally become at, maximally apophatic. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm as a consequence yeah and arianism was more apophatic right than its rival because arius would or athanasius would then say well no actually because of the homoousian relationship of the son to the father seeing jesus is seeing the father right the logos actually gives us a closer relationship and a better understanding of the father than what the Arians are allowing in their Christology. And so what so what's interesting is that my so that would mean why would that would mean consequently by the way under that kind of theological thinking that would mean that 
to have seen the face of a saint is to have seen the face of the father as well. Basically. Yeah. Yeah. Through participation. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. And so, so what's interesting is that, so my theology, which says no logos to circus, basically the difference is, is that Jesus is not essentially divine. He is participatively divine. He achieves theosis, right? In an incarnational Christology, Jesus is just perfectly divine from the get-go, right? And that then this soteriology is basically he cleanses humanity with his essential divinity, right? By this divinity coming So you're down, saying so for you essentially Jesus maximizes through his freedom. Yes. He maximizes the potency of humanity. Yes. To reach divinity. Yes. Is that yes. right? Yes. And you'll see a lot of that sort of language in Orthodox Christianity applied to Mary, right? Mm -hmm. um, Mary is basically the first human to achieve theosis in sort of kind of Catholic and Orthodox understanding so that she can be the bearer of, you know, the, the divinity or something like that. And what I, what I do is I kind of combine that I, I kind of what's interesting about that just to connect us to some of the things we've said about freedom in this conversation is that mary achieves that specifically through the fiat through uh -huh. the let it be right yes. which is interesting in light of in light of what i was just reading in tomberg because tomberg actually connects freedom to existence mm -hmm. it's like if like to be like anything that ex that actually exists must be free because yeah. anything that it, anything that that anything that has its freedom dependent on the existence of another doesn't actually exist independently. It doesn't actually have its own existence. Mm -hmm. And so, for me, something like Mary's fiat moment would be Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane saying, "Not my will, but Your will be done." Right. right. Yeah. 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 And, and that right. is that you know Jesus's free submission of obedience to the father is actually what allows divinity to come into humanity. And so for me, I actually kind of see Athanasius's point and David Bentley Hart's point is that Arius kind of cuts off the part, the, uh, a full participation of humanity and divinity saying mm -hmm. that we only get to participate in secondary divinity. Right. Right. And, um, but I'm saying we could participate in full divinity, but that's just also what Jesus did, right? And so therefore it's not this essential divinity that gets incarnated by joining to a human nature. It's a human being who, you know, through kind of by going down goes up. So and your so way of viewing your way of viewing the divine is still full fundamentally as a multi-unity, which I think is un which we I think we can't avoid. Mm -hmm. I, I right. Think so. Other yeah. than uh, other, I mean, uh, I mean, other than think, cutting deification off as a possibility, or just or pantheism, yeah. or or you just end up in pantheism. Right. Right. Yeah. If if, mm -hmm. the, if if anything actually exists in any sense other than God, then yeah. So that's that's interesting. But continue, continue. So so therefore, I would agree with Athanasius and David Bentley Hart that the hope that we have is full participation, full deification. Right. Uh, a humanity that is able to fully participate in the homoousian, you know, uh, nature of God the Father. We don't have it essentially, right, because that's the difference between energetic or um, participative divinity and essential divinity. 
only God the Father ever has essential divinity, in my view. And that's which, where... Which shows the ultimate faith in divinity toward human freedom, Yeah. by the way. Mm -hmm. And so this is and... one of the weird ways that I can agree with Athanasius and disagree with Arius. Yeah, I respect Arius's um, attempt at defending the monotheism of God the Father and recognizing Jesus's kind of subordinate role and that Jesus isn't like some member of the Godhead in like some kind of full sense, which I think causes lots of problems. I see Arius's points over there, but I feel like I get to have the best parts of both by, by being neither. And it's also true that in the fourth century, some of Arius's allies were biblical Unitarians who made the same points. He did not consider them to be fully orthodox, but he considered them to be more tolerable than his Arian opponents. And that like Marcellus of Ancyra is the example where he would say, Marcellus is wrong, but he's allowably wrong or something like that. Or he's wrong in a way that should be forgiven. Him. Yeah, I would say so, because I would say that it more fully appreciates the meaning of the the meaning of these central ap apocalyptic events yeah that we keep talking about it, it more feel it more fully appreciates both the meaning of the cross and the kingdom mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that um, that when you see jesus you can't when you see the son you do see the father right yeah right mm -hmm. yeah and not that there's some apophatic break in the chain that prevents that from happening and so, so that, so that's a, a weird way in which I do kind of, I, I, I mean, honestly, I thought that David Bentley Hart on the Aryan controversy was. Spot and you on. also don't lose, you also don't lose, you also don't lose any like in, inherently relational aspect of, of, of divinity either, because the act of creation itself and, and the existence of the creation in freedom, in freedom. In accordance with what I was talking about earlier, this yeah. idea of this, like this fundamentally the, of the divine hierarchy being a hierarchy of, of freedom and love. Yeah. Like yeah. that comes in, in the fact that creation happened at all. Right. Yeah. And that Jesus is the ultimate example of it. Right. right. The reason why Jesus gets to be at the top of the hierarchy, the reason why he gets to be, um, you know, highly exalted to the right hand of God, the father, it, you know, and that's how I understand the Philippians 2 passage. Lots of people think the Philippians 2 passage is about the voluntary incarnation of the Son into humanity, but I actually think it's about the voluntary submission of the human Son in his human life to crucifixion and to the will of the Father, and that that is what enables him to be eligible for the hyper-exaltation. It's because he made the ultimate self-sacrifice of love willingly. Yeah and the ultimate act of obedience. So therefore that is the thing that can withstand being at the top of the hierarchy in a worthy manner. Gotcha. Mm -hmm. So I don't know, I, I, how, how similar or not is that to Jensen? Well, uh, Jensen's still a Trinitarian. Yeah. Um, um, but although I don't know how you can be so logos, deny the logos of Sarkos and be a Trinitarian, because for me, that's like 
you know the the line of the nicene creed honestly that i could well I because here's the thing though he doesn't gotten so, before all ages. so because he he thinks that the he, he thinks that the um that the that viewing that the basically essentially for jensen the idea of the logos of, of sarcos come is 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 comes out of a human prejudice toward viewing things through through the lens of time yeah so Jensen will also Jensen also says, for example, to give you an example of how he's thinking about it, Jensen says that that time is a double helix with Christ as its center. So okay, even though so the even field? though there is no even though there is no logos of Sarcos, like Jesus is eternal, mm -hmm. and that anything which is eternal touches touches all time yeah because it, right? it's it's the it's the telotic magnet of perfection or something so it causes causality yeah. to move backwards yes. <laughs> because of its yes. eternal character so yeah. that's that's how right he can and and that's fine so he can so for him for so for him so for him it really is like like it is it is really jesus it is that is there creating the world with god in the beginning which you and you can also say that at the same time as that creation happens with the cross, you can say both of those things at the same time, and both of those be true. Right. All things are in Him and through Him and for Him. Correct. Exactly. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. Which is almost that sounds almost exactly how I understand that. I kind of figured it would be aligned with how you think about yeah, it. Yeah, because so that's why the, I keep trying to like, hey, we should read Jensen together and talk about it. Yeah, maybe maybe that'll be our next discussion. Maybe <laughs> I should. But, yeah. And and John Bear also seems to be the have the same theology too I, I i i still couldn't quite tell in my discussion with father john bear if he almost explicitly denied theophanies right or christophanies i should say that the right. appearances of god in the old testament are the pre-incarnate person of jesus which as far as i can tell i think that actually is supposed to be orthodox like dogma um mm. you know like they explicitly have uh, you know, uh, festivals of, you know, certain theophanies in the Old Testament, and they talk about how it's Christ and stuff like that. So I think that is supposed to be, you know, something on the border of, uh, you know, actual dogma for orthodoxy. But he, when I was talking about how Justin Martyr viewed the Old Testament theophanies as appearances of Christ, he's like, ah, actually, I don't think Justin Martyr was right about that. And I was like, I, part of me really should have, I sometimes struggle in my interviews, especially with high status people of wanting to kind of- That was a great down. conversation, by the way. Well, thank you. But yeah, you did a great job. Sometimes I feel like I should be a little bit bolder or a little bit more like <laughs> you need you either need to say this or this, right? And I'm, I, but then I don't want to feel like I'm trying to catch them or that I'm trying to embarrass them or that I, you know, won't get invited back next time or something like that. But it almost seemed to me like Origen was denying Logos to Sarkos and that there was this out of time eternal truth, right, that is sort of beyond the apocalyptic veil. And he also talks about it. Well, doesn't, I, I mean, isn't John Bear one of the record? Yeah, yeah, you know, John absolutely. Bear Yep. is the the third right. name on the back of the book yeah so well i think sam i think what you're talking about is like to bring this back into the context of 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 david's book we're kind of seeing like i think like the theological advancement that may shape the future mm -hmm. 
of the faith as we move toward our telos is starting to come about in our time. Like there are some pretty radical things going on yeah. in theology right now. Yeah. Um, and, and, and some of them actually, and some of, some of them actually align with, with where you've been sitting. Right. And some of them would challenge you. Sure. So my, my question for the no logos of Sarkos Trinitarians is, so what does begotten before all ages mean? Because for me, that, that says that the son is an agent, a personal agent in history who has personal continuity with his pre-incarnate and incarnate self. And that I, I'm quite sure that that's what the people who wrote the Nicene Creed meant. You know, I'm right. quite sure that that's what Athanasius meant. And uh, actually, Athanasius might not have been at the council. I think that his bishop, Alexander, was at the council and he was taking care of things back in Egypt while the council was going on. But anyway, um, I think that's what it meant. As a, I would say as a form would be my answer to that. So and in which case I'm fine with that. But then there's there's also a sense in which that's true of everybody and everything. Right. Jesus has a certain exalted place within that hierarchy of truth, right? And it's he's sort of the linchpin that holds the whole hierarchy of truth and form and cause all together right. in, in, the, his, in his own peculiar and unique sense. But there's also a place for Nate and Sam in that foreknowledge of God and the full... Well, it's in participation in that too. same form, Sam. Yeah. That form of humanity. Right. Agreed. And yeah. humanity is the humanity is the role that's at the you know god has given humanity dominion right that's in genesis and it's in psalm after psalm after psalm that that the unique role of humanity is dominion over creation and then okay so who has dominion among the humans right and so christ is the dominion of the dominion the king of kings you could say right so i i i don't see any problem with that it's right. just that jesus himself as a human grows into participation in that and finally achieves it right he was made perfect through what he suffers he had to you know grow with in wisdom seat. and stature to become and sort of unleash and unveil in his own you know suffering and resurrection that thing once and for all right all right so where so this is my problem i'm like okay great you got your, your trinitarians are starting to see some of the things i'm saying but i feel like you're trying to absorb me and i'm i'm hesitant i'm not that. i'm actually not trying i'm actually not trying to absorb you at all yeah um so no i'm just i just really was wanting to understand i think huh? we're i think now i think given the explanation you've given me i think we're at least on in terms of christology i think we're highly aligned mm-hmm so, well, tell me more about that. So it, what, either one of us is a heretic or both of us are neither of us. Uh, well, I think, I think, I think, I think, I think a lot of people in the community say we're just both heretics. Fine. Yeah. And, and well, and, and the problem is, is if I convince you of Unitarianism or if you get labeled a Unitarian and keep your universalism, then we're just Unitarian universalism. Yeah, that's right. You know, we can't, <laughs> Although, yeah. honestly, speaking of Unitarian universalism, I do yeah. think that when I was when I was reading this book, I think that his so his apocalyptic view is very progressivist, right? 
-hmm. you know, there's something about it, you know, the sort of open-ended um, optimistic embrace of progress towards the apocalyptic that part of me wanted to resist and I'm not sure mm. if I could quite identify why because I'm pretty sure like that was like the same view that the Unitarian Universalists have mm. and I'm not sure if it has enough guardrails on it or something like that and the best that I could come up with an articulation of why this might be wrong is that it doesn't appreciate fully enough how much of a revelation Jesus himself was, right? Okay. And that this is, that it's too forward-looking without enough backward-looking. Okay. Right? And that, so, because I come from a tradition that's very restorationist, I would say, in its ecclesiological outlook, by that I mean, like, you know, we constantly have to be working to restore the present faith to the past faith, right? The, the past faith, the uh, apostolic age faith was in some sense a perfect revelation of faith. And that we're constantly trying to kind of run uphill forwards towards the backwards um, to get our church into the future to look as much like it did in the past as we can. Right. So there's this weird sort of move uh, as we go into the as we go forward, we are go the goal is to move backward. And I don't feel like David kept that tension enough and that it was so forward looking that it could seemingly go in too many different directions right because he talks about the apocalypse too much in turn too much in terms of, of future yes and not a, and enough of jesus being an apocalypse well right exactly precisely and also missing that the, the apocalyptic of the now yeah yeah like that's that's i think that could have been stronger too like because well, I think it's because he wants to, I think he's ultimately at the end of the day, I think it's because he, it's funny because he, he also, I have, he wrote a book called Roland and Moonlight, which is like, to me, like very mystical, but in his, um, in most of his, in most of his books, he's trying to be a serious academic. So he avoids that. But I think, I honestly think that like the solution to this is 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 mysticism like okay. that's how we connect that's how we connect to the, that's how the now connects to eternity mm -hmm. is through those practices so could say a little bit more about that how does that work well it, it i mean different traditions are going to have like different practices for the but but what mysticism has in common is it's the seeking of the direct experience of the presence mm -hmm. of god that's what mysticism is, right? right. So for my a mysticism for a Pentecostal might be, you know, speaking in tongues. Mm -hmm. Mysticism for an Orthodox Christian might be recitation of the Jesus prayer. Mm -hmm. But we need these things. We need these. We but we need these things to root us into the now because this is because that's where that 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 experience of the presence and i think we call, we call it presence for a reason too right mm -hmm. it's like it's the absolute like openness of this moment like 
that has to be a part of it too. Yeah. And it's like, and, and there's no, I mean, and, and, and that is like something that's by, that's by its nature is outside of the realm of what you can advance propositionally in a book, which is why probably David doesn't go there. Mm-hmm. But I think, but practices are a part of, of our tradition. So right. we need some way to, to, to connect to, to God right here and in the moment and to, to, yeah. To, yeah, to, to, to not have the apocalyptic only be something that we're moving towards in the future. Right, exactly. But that there's some vertical portal connection to it now. Right. Yeah. Yeah, right. Yeah, well, I agree. Yeah, <laughs> I, I would say, I would say that for, like yeah and for 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 i think say for jew for jews i think that's what like for for jews who really take sabbath seriously that's what that is too mm-hmm. that's yeah it's it that's why it's filled with symbolism right and ritual and it's it's that's what that is it's it's inviting the presence yeah yeah mm-hmm. that's interesting so he yeah Hart didn't talk about that very much in this book, but you're saying he did a little bit more in other He places. has a book called Roland and Moonlight that's like, because he's talking through the, he, so that <laughs> Roland is his dog. Mm-hmm. So uh, the, the book is written as a series of dialogues on like nature walks between him and his dog. Yeah. <laughs> and the, the dog is, the dog says things that David probably would shy away from saying but i think david but he that, that, that i think are really part of how yeah. david really thinks yeah but he has to distance himself from it a little bit right right yeah mm-hmm. so there's roland's thoughts and not david's thoughts yeah. well <laughs> it, it would be interesting and refreshing if academic theology could get to the point where it could lean into that sort of more mystical way of talking without yeah. uh losing its credibility and causing i think it's to starting to happen I think it's starting to happen. I can see that. We need it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we do. Yeah. And another criticism I'll give, although he actually admitted it, I think, in like like the last paragraph or two of the book, is they didn't talk very much about the Holy Spirit, which to me, like, if you're going to talk about either tradition or apocalypse, you know, the, the, the Holy Spirit is, is, you know, what makes that happen. And, you know, I guess I kind of understand his explanation. He said, basically, like, you know, yeah, what I'm talking about is the Holy Spirit, but I wanted to talk about it in ways that were concrete enough for other people to understand. Because it's really hard to talk about the Holy Spirit without going into mysticism. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Right? Because <laughs> the Holy Spirit is like, that's how we, that's how we experience the present, both like individually in our in our contemplative life and communally in our worship right yeah and i think he also probably wanted to avoid using the holy spirit as i don't know a crutch or something like that to defend a particular view of traditionalism or something so i have to ask though i have to ask though what is as a non-trinitarian what is the holy spirit for you it's basically god's personal energy and presence right the like it, it's interesting most trinitarians when they hear I'm so it's the it's the part of god that can be like th- that can it be experienced within the the imminent yes yeah yeah but it's still I, it's but it's still unity it's still unity yeah it's not it's not a person apart from god but for trinitarians it's still a unity too though 
Right. Yes. But I might <laughs> even say it's even more unity. <laughs> yeah, right. Because most most Trinitarians, when they hear that, how much of this is a point of emphasis? It's just the difference in emphasis. Well, it's part of it. Yeah. But I mean, I grew up in a Pentecostal Unitarian church. We emphasize the Holy Spirit. Oh, lot. really? Yes. Oh, wow. Pentecostal <laughs> yeah. Unitarian. Or, well, charismatic Unitarian, I guess. Right. Because you know, yeah, Pentecost yeah, yeah, that's okay. Pentecostal is a denomination. Charismatic is a flavor. Right? Yeah. It's I grew up Assemblies like of God. So Trinitarian yeah. Pentecostal. Right. So we're, you know, we're not that far removed from Assemblies of God. And actually my family, if you were to connect my theological family tree, it actually goes into oneness Pentecostalism. And there are some people who are very influenced by oneness Pentecostalism who flip. Right. Doesn't your, do, right. Cause doesn't your religious background have roots in the Jesus movement of the seventies? Yes. Yeah. So does it's, my, so, so my parents too. Yeah. So it's like some sort of like the, you know, the group that my dad joined in like the seventies was basically like some weird combination of a Calvinist minister who had like a speaking in tongues experience through oneness Pentecostals, but thought that their Christology was wrong, but that the Trinity was also wrong. So became a biblical Unitarian and then found the growth of his movement in the Jesus movement time. So it's like Jesus movement plus oneness Pentecostalism, plus a little bit of some high theological training from Princeton Seminary, right? Gotcha. It, 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 and plus dispensationalism. It, it, it's a weird thing, <laughs> but, but it, it's like all of those ingredients thrown together in a way that only American... Only, only in America. Only in only America, America. Are those ingredients found in one place, yeah. yeah. Uh, so, so that, I mean, so like we, we emphasize the Holy Spirit a lot. And I, and so when... When Trinitarians hear that I'm a Unitarian, they, they think, oh, so you think that the Holy Spirit isn't God. And it's like, no, I, I think the Holy Spirit is not a separate person apart from God, right? Right. And so I would, like, I think the Holy Spirit's divine because, of course, what else would it be, right? You know, it's it, it's God in action, basically. It's God's spirit. And, and just like the way the wind is like, you know, this force that you can see. That's the another thing of. I would like to discuss with you at some point, if I could ever find it in English translation is uh, um, Bulgakov's essay on um, hypostasity, where he really goes into like hypostasis, like in uh -huh. great detail. Interesting. Because basically I think... what I'm saying is the Holy Spirit is not a separate hypothesis in that it, it's like an aspect of God. So yeah, yeah it's, see, well, it's not the full, it's not like all of God himself. It's sort of like an aspect or a power or kind of a sub thing of God, right? And I know I'm flirting with hypothesis language. Right, saying that, I know. But, and like you can personify well, hypothesis, it. Well, let's be way. honest about it. Hypothesis language is, well, it, it is person language is even more confusing. Yeah. yeah. By the way. Yes. Uh, and 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 but hypothesis language is also super confusing so i don't think i mean it's like this is why people this is why most sane trinitarians don't even try to to talk about it because these things are very very difficult to understand so if i had to put it simply i would say that because trinitarians say that god the father is a hypothesis right there are three hypotheses father son and spirit what i think is the mistake is putting the holy spirit in the same ontological category of a thing that god the father is supposed to be also 
because I would put the Holy Spirit kind of within and under God the Father, right? So I wouldn't use the same ontological vocabulary to say God the Father is a thing or a thingamajig, right? And so, and the Holy Spirit is another thingamajig, right? Because that's using the same word to describe both of them. I would say God the Father is a person. But you also right? don't, like from, the from, from a classical a, point of view, you also don't want to say that God has parts either, though. Right, probably. I don't want so to. So that's like where down. you get into, like, so this is why this all comes out, is because so there's these aspect, tensions that you're trying to work yeah. out. Aspect or attribute might be, or power. I mean, because, you know, God's love isn't like all of him or something like that, right? You know, it's like when we're talking about God's love, we're talking about part or some particular thing that we're describing but that is in some it is sense, the it is the undefinition we're given for god's essence though oh, fair by enough. revelation yes okay god is love all right maybe i should have started with wisdom or or mercy or or something right like yeah, that. Yeah, right. yeah 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 but yes, but correct. these are all different you know we can use individual words that eventually do all connect up into a unity in god Right. And that's why I, I think would... that love properly understood ends up becoming able to embrace all of those things, though, which is yeah, why okay, God, that's why love is the essence. Yeah. So maybe I picked the wrong one as an example for that particular <laughs> right. thing. But I, I, I mean, I think you understand what I'm saying. Oh, I do. I do. Yeah. I do. And it's just, yeah, we should have uh, we should have another conversation some other time about sure some of those things because also my because my christology important to my understanding how jesus becomes to participate in divinity i don't really think that's actually different than saying that jesus had was filled with the holy spirit without measure right the gospel of john says jesus was filled with the holy spirit without measure right like and that's connecting back to elijah right elijah had the holy spirit and then elisha asked for a double portion of what was given to Elijah. This would also allow you, by the way, with where you're at, and I don't, I don't know if I don't want to make you uncomfortable doing this, but this would also allow you to have a very high Mariology. Yeah. Full of grace. Right. Right. But if it, you were it, so inclined, if I were within so your understanding. But I still think that Jesus had half siblings. <laughs> I still think the best way to understand those passages is that James is Jesus' half brother. So I'm not going perpetual virginity yet. And I well, like you don't have to. You can have a high Mariology without having a perpetual virginity. Well, yeah, and I'm perfectly fine with some amount of high Mariology. I mean, she was, you know, blessed are you among women and all of that sort of thing. But uh, but then that would also connect to what I think, you know, where are souls now? And I think that. Jesus is unique among human souls and being in heaven proper and that there aren't other saints or stuff in that same sort of place playing that same sort of role, which is part of the reason why I would not pray to saints or venerate saints is because um, they aren't in heaven and that's not going to do you any good, basically, to put it bluntly. Um, mm. And that they're in Haiti. And being a, what does being in heaven mean? Well, it's a good question, you know, uh, um, not uh, being in heaven means that you have a resurrected body that can be, withstand being in the presence of God without being eviscerated. I'll say that. And Mary and the other saints are not yet resurrected and so are not yet there. Not Revelation yet. 12 disagrees with you. Hey, you, you, you will you will have to agree with me that time and revelation works very funnily yeah that's true very true yeah. I'll bring you that. yeah right right yeah. Yeah. yeah no 
yeah. But great conversation, Sam. Yeah, I appreciate it. I, I think feel... there's there's a there's a lot more to explore here, obviously. Yeah. Well beyond David's book, which was good. Mm-hmm. But anyway, I enjoyed talking with you, Nate. Any any last things you want to say? No, I think I think well, we covered so much ground. There's like tons that I would want to say, but it's like I have to start work in 15 minutes. So. Sure. Right. well well thanks for thanks for giving me space to talk to and oh uh, yeah no you're fascinating you're great to talk to all right uh, likewise nate i appreciate all it all right we'll, we'll talk again sometime soon you bet sam